The Honorable, the Judges of the United States, Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to draw nigh and give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Good morning, everybody. Please be seated. Welcome to the uh, Fourth Circuit. We have two cases for en banc hearing this morning, and we'll begin with uh, Cato versus Falwell. Mr. Depper, whenever you're ready, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court, my name is John Nepper, and I represent the North Carolina State Health Plan. Insurance is a trade-off. Protection against more risks costs more money. There is no law or regulation that requires the North Carolina State Health Plan to cover each member's medically necessary treatment. Whether or not a service is medically necessary to treat a specific diagnosis, the plan will still not pay for that treatment unless that particular risk is covered under the plan. And this refusal is not limited to plaintiffs. There are other benefits that, that are medically necessary the plan doesn't cover. IVF, specific infant formula, uh, dry needling, which is a, a pain management uh, technique that's replacing opioids, and proton beam therapy for cancer. The court below wrongly concluded that the plan's exclusion for treatment or studies leading to or in connection with sex changes or modifications in related care is a facial classification under the Equal Protection Clause. This is factually and analytically wrong. The exclusion relates to treatments that can be pre uh, prescribed for specific diagnoses. It does not identify or classify individual plan members at all. The exclusion does not classify plan individuals on the basis of biological sex. It applies to all individuals. In this context, the word sex refers to the organs that are affected, not the individual patient's biological sex. Further, the exclusion does not classify individuals on the basis of gender identity. The classification does not depend on whether someone is transgender or not. The plaintiff's argument that a law excluding gender dysphoria would discriminate against transgender people as a class does not reflect a facial classification. It is proxy-based reasoning and needs to be analyzed as such as evidence of motive that is considered by the fact finder during a trial. Uh, the exclusion applies to every plan member. It applies both to transgender uh, transitioners and cisgender detransitioners. The but-for causation is established whenever a particular outcome would not have happened but for the pur purported cause. And when you examine the, the operation and the classification here from the plan, it becomes clear that, that, is, that the distinctions here are based on diagnosis and treatment, the same kinds of distinctions that, that an insurance plan makes in every other context, rather than on the individual's identity or the individual applicants as a person. Um, you know, 50 years ago in- Mr. Nepper, yes, um, the, the, the plan covers uh, 
just as an example, mastectomy uh, following a diagnosis of cancer. Is that correct? That is correct. But the plan doesn't cover a mastectomy following the diagnosis of gender dysphoria if the patient uh, has been advised by his or her doctor that that's part of the treatment. Isn't that correct? That is correct. So how do you justify that? Well, Your Honor, the, I think the, the, that the distinction is based on diagnosis. And the Supreme Court's held that those kinds of distinctions based on risks covered are subject to rational basis review. Uh, we would still have to justify that as, at, as, non, as not motivated by discriminatory motive at, at trial. But for purposes of this court's review now, it's, it's not a facial but classification. But isn't the, I mean, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria inherently bound up in notions of sex and sexual identity? Uh, I know the, the diagnosis does relate to gender identity, but that's, I want to, want to be a little careful because sex classification is not the same as relates to sex. And I think the, the, the key question, if, if you look at the reasoning, for example, that the Supreme Court used in Bostock for what's a but-for cause, you, you, the question is change one thing and do you get a different result? And you know, the exclusion here is, okay, I, well, I did, come did, forward. Didn't I just change one thing and got, got a different result? No, no, you, you're, well, you're changing the diagnosis, Your Honor, which is not a classification. A diagnosis which is inherently bound up in sex and sexual identity. Uh, well, Your Honor, I mean, I think that, that is the, the reasoning that was rejected by the Supreme Court in Godoldig, where- There really the, wouldn't be any difference in the answer to Judge Diaz's question, and pregnancy, as the Supreme Court looked at it in Godoldig and Dobbs, would there? No, exactly, Your Honor. The, the, the Supreme Court said, look, we understand that only women can be pregnant in Godoldig. That's not policed as a facial classification. That's policed by an investigation into motive and whether the exclusion was adopted because of its effect. there's some unwritten provision that we, it's not in the Constitution that exempts pregnancy from an equal protection analysis, then the same analysis that would apply in Godaldic and Dobbs would apply here. Yes, Your Honor, that's, that's, that's the plan's argument. It, again, we don't claim that, that we are entitled to summary judgment in favor of the plan. The plan didn't move for summary judgment. The plan's position is that this should go back to the district court and there should be a trial to look for impermissible motive. But, I mean, I guess the difference in Godaldic is there was no comparable diagnosis that was being treated differently, right? That pregnancy is a, a condition um, unique to individuals, uh, but there's no comparable condition that was being treated disparate, uh, disparately. But here, you've got, as, back to my example, and there are others, you know, the gender-affirming treatment for hormones and the like that are in some plans, I guess this plan, provided to some people and not others. Isn't that the distinction? Well, but, but you're no, Your Honor, because in each case there are different diagnoses, and the record the record indicates that plaintiffs and every other plan member gets the same treatment for the same diagnoses. So, if plaintiffs come forward and, and are suffering from breast cancer, like every other member of the plan, they receive the mastectomy. The distinction is not based on 
who they are or their identity. It's based on the, the medical diagnosis. And Can I ask you a follow-up on the diagnosis point? Because your argument is this doesn't discriminate based on gender or gender identity because it discriminates based on diagnosis. But aren't at least some of these diagnoses themselves inherently linked to a person's sex assigned at birth? I'm thinking of the example of hypogonadism, which literally can't be diagnosed without reference to someone's sex assigned at birth. So why is it, so, the di so if the diagnosis itself necessarily incorporates consideration of the person's sex assigned at birth, why is that a classification based on sex assigned at birth? That is exactly what Goodoldig rejects, Your Honor. Goodoldig wait, wait, hold says, on. No, the diagnosis of being pregnant does not depend on a person being biologically assigned female at birth. The diagnosis of being pregnant is the diagnosis of being pregnant. Well, Your Honor, they, the, the... I don't have to determine what someone's genes are to determine whether or not they're pregnant. I don't have to determine what someone's sex assigned at birth was to determine if they're pregnant. I have to determine if they're pregnant. Here, I can't diagnose someone with at least some of these conditions without knowing what their sex assigned at birth was. So I think, I think you, are, you, are, you are asking, you know, th this, this goes to one of the, one of the sort of sub-issues in, in, in the litigation below. But uh, you know, medicine is you know we're not we're not contesting, and I don't believe the plaintiffs are contesting that medicine itself, like the practice of medicine, is inherently sex specific. That's what physicians do. Uh, in other words, treatment for you know, the, the treatment for heart attack and heart risk is different depending on your your biological <clears throat> makeup, and we're not attempting to say that should be treated differently. That's 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 responsible medicine. Our our point is we we are presented with a diagnosis, we are presented with a treatment regimen for that diagnosis, and that's all, the plan does not look at sex, does not record or look at transgender identity. But again, it does, because it covers some diagnoses and uh, doesn't cover other diagnoses that literally can't be made except by reference to a person's sex assignment. And the, you know, I guess the, the response to that, Your Honor, is that the Supreme Court in Bray was presented with a similar question only women can receive an abortion. And the court said that, that itself, you can't adopt an ipso facto motive analysis. You have to, deter, you have to prove that that effect or that, that distinction was adopted because of the effect on the, on the, on the class rather than in spite of or with, with, with knowledge of. And, and that is a motive analysis which this court has repeatedly said is done by the fact finder, the jury at trial, not by the courts in a in a uh, sort of race ipso loquitur type analysis. But let's stay with Judge Hyden asked his question about a, a boy who wanted to remove breast tissue. You would, you would cover that at birth, a boy at birth, or male at birth, or whatever. Would you, would you cover that? He had excess. Breast tissue, would you remove that? Would you, would you cover that? I, 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 I don't, that, that's, that diagnosis is not in the record of excess breast, breast tissue. I mean, the question is what are the diagnoses and when, when are they prescribed? I mean, we, we haven't, you know, if, if you, you know, there's not a diagnosis discussed in the record of excess, excessive breast tissue. Uh, what you cover, the question is that in terms of, well, that's what, if a, if a trans, uh, gender woman, let's say a transgender woman wanted to remove, let's say a transgender male, I should say, wanted to remove his breast, could you remove her breast? If, would you cover it? 
it depends on what the biological, what the medical diagnosis is. If, if the, the medical diagnosis has. is a transgender person who wants to identify as a transgender male and wants to have her breast or his breast removed. Well, would you cover? Well, this is this is what the insurance plan. This is an insurance plan, Your Honor. Exactly. We're talking about people who work for the state and and teachers and all those people. They need to know you have this. Basically, gender change or, or surgery if it's transsexual, you, you prohibit it, don't you? No, first of all, we don't. The, the state health plan does not prohibit. We don't it. cover it. We, we don't cover it. But but it's the be, same thing for a lot of people. It, not it, having health insurance covered is prohibiting it. Right. So so, so is that that's your is that what you do? You, you said you can't change anything about your sex. No, physiology no. that's different than the one at birth. Well, first, first, Your Honor, in order to get coverage under the state health plan, you have to have an illness. So, you know, the condition of transgenderism is not an illness. It's it's very it's clear. Not an illness. No, absolutely not, Your Honor. Is it a medical condition that being, needs treatment? You no. even deny that. No, being transgender, and, and this is this is uncontested in the record. The the the. The experience of being transgender is not itself a mental illness. People who are transgender are not mentally ill. There are some, there's a subset, and in this record it's not clear what, there are no percentages provided. We could, we could discern that from the experts. There are a subset of people who are transgender who suffer from gender dysphoria, which is That's a right. diagnosed psychological illness. And, and you ban coverage for any treatment for that? Again, the plan doesn't ban coverage. The plan simply does not cover okay. certain, you exclude certain, coverage. certain treatments. Certain treatments? Certain treatments. There's no... There's no How long therapy, for example? Well, there's, there's no restriction on therapy, Your Honor. The, the plans... The plan, and this is in our briefs. The plan's exclusion... You know, the plan... What about surgery, then? The, the plan does not cover surgeries, and it does not cover uh, hormones or other drugs where there is a requirement for pre-authorization. Well, isn't there a, for lack of a better word, a portal under the plan? If you want coverage, there must be physical injury or disease. And that's the portal. You have to satisfy that for any number of coverages. And isn't that what distinguishes this situation? Y yes, Your Honor. I mean, at, at the in order to seek coverage under the state health plan, you have to have an illness. That's what this is. This is a health insurance health benefit plan. If you, the question if, was an injury or disease. You, you, you agree with that? You have to have an injury or disease? That was the question. Yes, with, with, a, with, the, with the one modification that I, I want to make sure we understand that there are mental illnesses that are also covered by the plan. And I think people would, you know, I don't want people to think somehow that those aren't injuries or very real uh, uh, diseases. And so it, what do you call it when, when someone who has gender dysphoria, dysphoria and, and they have depression, severe depression, uh, that could lead to all types of things if untreated, uh, debilitating conditions, including self-mutilation and suicide? Are we, are we close to anything near the people who you do treat for mental disorders that you would cover? You wouldn't cover it. You know, the fact that those things that 
you're shaking your head. It is, it's replete in the record that untreated gender dysphoria can lead to those types of disabilities and severe depression and those things like that. Do you disagree with that? Your Honor. In this record? Well, what, what, what the, plan, the plan does not, you know, this, this, this is not, uh, in this case, motivated. It sounds like you're, you're asking me a motive question, which is, you know, are we, are we saying that we don't care not that you did you that, care? You said you treat mental illness and things like that. I'm just trying to see why would this fit in the category? Forget about your motives. The, the plan, the plan, like as with any other uh, injury or disease or illness, the plan co covers diagnoses and covers for each diagnosis certain treatments. So there are, there are, you know, there are you know, this distinction between. Do you, do, do you cover severe? Depression? Absolutely. It, but it's covered. It's not covered with surgery. It's covered with um, the various mental health. How do you know it's not covered with surgery? You're saying that you you would prohibit, you would exclude surgery if somehow it found that that mental disorder was related to something that was organic. You wouldn't have cover surgery. You just that's what you said. Blank. We wouldn't cover surgery. That's what well, there, there's currently an exclusion in the plan for surgery for psychological or, or emotional uh, reasons. That's part of the overall, one of the overall exclusions that's at issue in this case. And so I, I can't, you know, not being aware of a specific surgery that would be prescribed, uh, certainly one that's not experimental, which is another exclusion, I, I, you know, I can't see any way that that would be covered. It doesn't mean that there's not one. If there is one, you know, the plan doesn't cover it. Council, um, Judge Gregory asked earlier about removal of breast tissue from a male. Um, I think part of that question was for a situation where there was no disease or illness. Would that be covered? No, Your Honor. If there's not, an, if there's not a, a medical diagnosis related to an illness, that the plan covers, it doesn't. It doesn't cover removal of breast tissue or or, or other medical procedures. It you know the key the key question the plan is always looking at is what's your diagnosis and what is the treatment that's associated with this diagnosis, and then it, then the next question is is this one of the risks against which the plan ensures? Council, it's it, it does sound um, the way you're putting it sounds one way. Am I right that the, the actual exclusion is termed, it's an exclusion for treatment in connection with sex changes or modifications? I mean, I'm still stumbling just as a matter of common sense over how an exclusion that is termed an exclusion for treatment in connection with sex changes or modifications is neutral as to someone's transgender status. Just explain it to me like I'm in kindergarten. Sure. Your Honor, the, uh, the exclusion applies equally to people, whether they're male or female, so it's not a sex classification. And then your, your follow-up question, whether it's, it's, it's a discrimination, discriminatory provision for, for transgender individuals, it applies equally in the same way. It applies to transgender people who are transitioning and to cisgender people who are detransitioning. Yeah. We just don't I make mean, these changes like, or don't pay for them. And is that different from something like loving neither black people nor white people can marry people of the opposite sex. Is that different from that kind of reasoning? Yes, Your Honor, because the 
relevant factor is not the uh, individual's identity. The, re the relevant factor but, but is again, the individual's it, diagnosis. It, the, the person who is excluded is a person who wants treatment in connection with a sex change or modification, and I am just hung up on how that's not based on somebody's transgender, transgender status. And I, I'm going to put sex to one side, but we did say in Grimm that transgender status itself triggers intermediate scrutiny. And we're sitting on bonk. We don't have to stick with that. But assuming for a moment that we are, I, I, I'm just, I, I can't even phrase my question, right? I'm just sure. not, I just can't get around how is an exclusion for sex changes or modifications not based on a person's transgender status? Well, because, you know, Again, factually, the plan doesn't look at that. So, so I mean, this is not a case. This is not, for example, the Bostock reasoning, where you, you're looking at somebody and saying, "Okay, if this was a man or th and, and dressed in a particular way, that person would be is fired. If this person's a woman and dresses the same way, that person's fine." You know, it, it, just it, seems, it seems like your answer, and I will let this drop in. No, no, no. Look, neither cisgender people nor transgender people can have a sex change operation, and I don't find that very satisfactory. It does sound to me very much like loving. Black people can't marry white people. White people can't marry black people. We're all good. Well, well first of all, we don't prohibit anything, and second, I'm sorry, we, exclude. Yeah, yeah, but but beyond that, we also don't. Uh, it, it, the critical point is, Your Honor, transgender people is not the class of people seeking a sex change, or a, the, the class of people are individuals diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And that is a subset. It, it, it is correlated. But uh, that's where Godoldig's reasoning comes Can in I and ask says. You to go back to this, the first question I asked you. How do I decide if the, the treatment that's going to be implemented is going to, you say, leading to or in connection with? So put aside in connection with for a second. Leading to. How do I even determine whether the surgical intervention I'm about to do is going to lead to a sex change? without knowing the person's sex assigned at birth. I, I, I don't even know how I'm supposed to figure out what that means without reference to the sex assigned at birth. Well, I mean, the, the way it's Doing done. Doing this thing will lead to a sex change. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't love the term sex change because I think it, it, it doesn't Changing add, the person. Add, yeah, but, 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 but I think, I think it, it over, it, it, it's archaic, but also it, I think it gloms together a number of procedures. That, that, that are that are that are covered that are that, would, that are sought under this under this rubric, I, I think you know from the from the the plan's perspective, they, they look at what's the diagnosis code, you know what is what is the what is the basis under which the physician is seeking to cover this, and that diagnosis code reflects the application of that physician's medical judgment to the individual and says this is why this individual needs medical care, and. You know, there are unquestionably illnesses that are specific to people of different biological sexes. And, but that, you know, the Supreme Court said in, in Godoldig that doesn't, that itself isn't a basis for, for, uh, for an equal protection violation. And then the, the plan simply looks at what, what is the illness that you're seeking coverage for and what are the procedures you're seeking coverage for. And if the, and the answer is if, if it's, if the procedures are some of the excluded procedures, they're not covered. If other, otherwise, they are covered. 
And, but again, you know, the, the, the all of the distinctions that, that, are, that are made about an individual sex are not made by the plan, and, they're, and, and they're not re they are not relevant to the plan's coverage criteria. They are made by the physician in the course of treating the individual and determining what, what specific illnesses uh, that person suffers from. Go ahead. You, you referenced the Bostock um, you know, causation standard. Do you have a position on whether Bostock applies to an equal protection claim? I think the, the court itself has, has suggested that it doesn't. I mean, there's the concurrence by the author of, 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 of Bostock in, uh, in Students for Fair Admission, where, where Justice Gorsuch said, you know, equal protection is different. Uh, the, I think, I think the, the critical distinction is that when, you, when you're in that kind of Bostock analysis, you're really looking for motive. You're trying to say, okay, why are you, um, why are you making this decision? And that is in the, in the context of equal protection, not a facial classification. And the facial classifications are, do you, you know, is this, you know, we're dividing individuals based so, on sex so or, or gender. Is that a no, or is that a facial? We don't believe that Bostock changes the analysis. We don't believe it applies to equal protection analysis. Okay. But can, we, can I follow up on that? Sorry, I'm over here. It's hard sure. to tell where we are. So, so I agree. So assume for a minute I agree with you that, that Bostock teaches us that it's not facial, right? That's the point of Bostock is that it wasn't facial. They were trying to get behind the facial classification. But in the equal protection clause context, we often try to get behind a non-facial classification, right? That's the whole point of Arlington Heights. That's what Bray's talking about, about the yarmulke, right? I mean, the court says over and over in equal protection context cases that we're trying to figure out, was this done because of, not in spite of, the, the classification? And so I, I accept your first point that it doesn't do anything, in fact, suggests this is not a facial classification. But doesn't the Bostock analysis inform whether this is based on sex? And so if we got past a facial classification, wouldn't we then look to the generally applicable principles that Bostock laid down? Your Honor, that is precisely what the fact finder does in the context of determining motive. I mean, that, that's- and, and, and one way of establishing motive in the regression context non-facially may well be to look at Bostock's but-for analysis, and if you found whatever we want to think that analysis is, if you found that was satisfied, then that would show a but-for, not in spite of, motivation. Exactly, Your Honor. That, that analysis, you know, that, this court's been very clear that you can still have an equal protection violation even without a facial classification, but that requires an examination of motive, and that requires trial. That requires factual factual evaluation. The district court here declined to make any findings on motive, and so at, at this level, at the court of appeals level, the, the the remedy to go back and do that work is is to send this back down to the district court for trial. Thank you, Mr. Nepper. We've got time for rebuttal, uh, Ms. Borelli. May it please the court, Tara Borelli with Lambda Legal on behalf of the plaintiffs at Belize. I'd like to focus on three main issues today. I'll first explain why the district court was correct to find that the exclusion at issue facially discriminates against plan members based on their sex and transgender status. 
Second, I'll explain why Godoldig versus Aiello does not apply to this case. And third, I'll address why defendants' purported governmental interests cannot justify the exclusion. But let me begin with a couple of factual issues that came up during my colleague's would, argument. Would you just speak up just a little bit? I'd yes. appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. First, I want to address the question of whether gender dysphoria is a medical diagnosis. And on this record, the unrebutted evidence shows that it is. First of all, we have a Blue Cross Blue Shield policy. That's their own third-party administrator policy. It's a policy that they elected to use in 2017. And that policy says expressly on its face that one meets, when one meets the criteria for gender dysphoria, it is a medical condition. And that's stated in express terms in that policy. Let me ask you preliminarily on that the question of diagnosis. Is, is that what we look at when we're looking at facial discrimination, or do we look at the text of the exclusion? I think you could look at both. I think I would start with the text of the exclusion. And I think that text, it's impossible to read it without finding sex discrimination. So for example, the exclusion is a, a ban on coverage for sex changes or modifications. That's the language of the exclusion. And I think defendants have yet to offer a persuasive explanation for how a ban on sex changes is somehow not based on sex. So when we look at that text at all treatment, deals with uh, sex changes. There's no reference that I see there to gender dysphoria. So, well, th th I think the, the exclusion itself answers the question. Um, but defendants have said this discriminates based on gender dysphoria. Let's let's take that at face value and say that's the, the basis of the- But I'm looking the, at the text. It doesn't say anything about diagnosis either. Correct. Well, that's why we think it's so clearly just based on sex that it's a classification of transgender people and a classification based on sex. But even looking at the diagnosis, the diagnosis itself is inextricably bound up in sex-related considerations. You can't say the diagnosis out loud without referring to sex. The diagnosis is called gender dysphoria. And you can't describe what gender dysphoria well, is. Suppose we disagree with you on whether this is a discrimination based on sex. And we see this as a... Um, uh, treatment based neutrally on an illness rather than on gender. The, the question I have is, what are we doing to the structure of the Constitution when you're asking us to intervene? We're telling the states what they can cover and what they cannot in their own insurance programs. And suppose states have to balance their budgets and they have to look after their funds, they're stewards of those funds, and they're limited. Now suppose a state just makes the choice that its limited funds are best spent on cancer treatments or on, um, on cardiovascular therapy or in stroke recovery. I mean, this is not the only illness out there, and if a why, why can't a state decide that the money that could have been spent on coverage for uh, transgender-related issues should instead be spent to provide greater coverage for cancer, stroke, and heart attack victims? Now, absent some federal prohibition put down by CMS or 
tied to federal funding, I don't see the res I, I don't see how we can get into the business of saying to the states, hey, you can cover this, but not that. Hey, you can do this, but not that. And the other, I mean, who are we to be telling the states how they can insure their own employees? Why not cancer, heart, and stroke treatments? Your Honor, equal protection provides the framework that has to be applied to this exclusion here. Of course, an insurance plan draws all sorts of lines, but equal protection provides that if those lines are facially neutral. But there's also the structure of the Constitution. We're so focused on a very debatable question of equal protection law, and we can go this way, and we can go that way, and some, some judges might see, see it this way, and some might see it that way, but given that the, that the uh, equal protection claim is highly disputable between two different points, legitimate points of view, doesn't the structure of the Constitution play into that and a respect for the sovereignty of the states over their own employees and how they wish, how they, how they wish to use limited funds to cover a rather broad range of illnesses. And, and, and how can we jump in and say, no, here's the way you should design your insurance program. That, absent some kind of federal prohibition and federal regulation or law which is tied to federal funding, and I don't see it here, um, it seems to me to assume a very imperial position for the federal judiciary to be making these sorts of dictations. Your Honor, I think that's the role that the 14th Amendment requires of the courts. It's particularly important for the courts to protect constitutional rights, especially when we're talking about classifications based on suspect or quasi-suspect classes. Do you agree that the equal protection issue is squarely presented here, correct? Yes, Your Honor. No statutory interpretation alternative here. Equal protection issue. That is correct. The equal protection claim is the only one on appeal to this court. There is a statutory claim that remains pending at the district court, but is not part of this appeal. And this is an injunction appeal. It's That's an correct. interlocutory appeal of an injunction issued by the district court. That's correct, Your Honor. Ms. Burley, uh, um, my, my good friend Judge Wilkinson makes a very valid point that insurers have to make difficult decisions all the time with respect to coverage. But as, as you point out, um, if there's an equal protection violation, then the courts should step in if there's been discriminatory uh, actions taken uh, against a particular suspect group. And it seems to me that the costs are not relevant at that point. I mean, the, the jurors decision is, uh, has to comply with the law. But in this case, as I recall in the record, can, maybe you can tell me, it wasn't a, it wasn't a substantial amount of money that was being uh, expended for these uh, to, to, to cover these small group of employees and employers that needed the coverage. How much money are we talking about? That's correct, Your Honor. First, I do want to mention there is an answer to that question as a matter of law, which I think the court just alluded to, which is all government entities have to be concerned about limited resources, but balancing the public fisc has to be a shared burden. It can't be shunted onto the backs of a vulnerable minority group. Um, but on the facts, 
um, the argument also fails. The plant's own 30B6 witness disclaimed this interest in her deposition. She said, quote, the cost of this benefit is not going to break the plan. Never was, never will, end quote. And it's no wonder that she conceded that to directly answer the court's question during the full calendar year that this care was covered, that was 2017. The cost came in at close to one one hundredth of one percentage point of the plan's total annual premium, a drop in the bucket compared to the plan's positive cash on hand balance of more than $1 billion in 2018, the year after this care was well, provided. The Supreme Court has never quantified it, and that it didn't do it in Godaldig, it didn't do it in Dobbs, it didn't do it in GE versus Gilbert, it didn't do it in Bray, it didn't do it in Nashville Gas versus Sadie. The Supreme Court's <coughs> never gotten into that. I think it's just an additional reason to find that the government justification here is not an exceedingly persuasive interest, and this classification certainly is not substantially related to it. Um, but if I might jump back to a, another discussion we were having about the... But preliminarily, just at least in the discussion that's going on, does this, does this not turn on in terms of the level of scrutiny that we apply here? I mean, if you're talking rational basis, you're kind of in this, this area, but... There are those who think that this follows Grimm. And, you know, this transgender should be immediate scrutiny. And maybe someone thinks it's strict, but wouldn't that answer part of this cost analysis? Of course, there is a case that turned on that, really, the, the basis upon which the, the other side relies on is in a footnote uh, that deals with the, the, the classification distinctions. But, but it's an economic type case, from what I read, that, that deals with it. But the, wouldn't the basis that, if we could agree, as to what the basis it would help to inform the conversation. But if you've got some believe in this rational basis or some intermediate, you're going to have this back and forth, and it doesn't fit until you decide which category it goes in. I don't think costs can sustain this classification under any level of review. I agree that heightened scrutiny applies. I agree that under heightened scrutiny, cost is simply not an adequate justification. But even under rational basis, I would refer to um, the Department of Agriculture versus Moreno, where the Supreme Court examined a very similar interest under rational basis, avoiding fraud and waste in the federal food stamp program, and found under rational basis that that was not sufficiently closely related enough, um, even under rational basis, to justify the classification there. Um, Your Honors, earlier we had some discussion about the fact that this exclusion occurs in the context of a health insurance plan, and I, I do want to just offer a few observations on that. Um, insurance plans are actually one of the core contexts in which the Supreme Court has found sex-based classifications and applied heightened scrutiny to them. And I would refer the court to Frontier versus Richardson, Heckler versus Matthews, Wengler versus Druggist Mutual, and Califano versus Goldfarb. Those are all examples of different insurance and benefits plans in which the court found a sex-based classification and applied heightened scrutiny. Your colleague on the other side, I mean, this is not his only argument, but obviously an important component of his argument is his reliance on Gedulddig and the, the notion that the court in that case made a distinction with respect to pregnancies, that it was a condition, not a sex-based uh, discriminatory uh, action, and upheld the, the, uh, the exclusion. And I have to say, it's a bit of a head-scratcher when you look at that in, in the context of where we are today and whether or not that case was actually correctly decided, but we're stuck with it. You are stuck with it. So tell me why that doesn't uh, doesn't mean game, set, and match for you with respect to this case. 
Geduldig is different from this case for two reasons. First, Geduldig decided that one particular potential proxy, pregnancy, was not sufficiently closely related to be sex discrimination. But the Supreme Court has affirmed repeatedly in the decades since Geduldig that discrimination based on a proxy for a protected characteristic is facial discrimination, and that includes in Rice versus Caetano, Christian Legal Society, and Braver's Alexandria. Yeah, well, why doesn't Geduldig fit in, uh, you know, um, why is Geduldig the exception then? Well, because it, it examined one particular proxy, this court has already looked at, it didn't eliminate proxy discrimination. That remains a form of discrimination the Supreme Court has continued to recognize and to treat as facial discrimination. So the question in this case is, is sex change, a ban on sex changes, a ban on gender dysphoria, is that a closely enough related proxy for um, transgender people? And the answer is unequivocally yes. Well, Godeldig is not an outlier. I mean, the Supreme Court just doubled down on it in Dobbs. I think Dobbs doesn't break any new ground. It simply applies that same analysis to another potential proxy abortion care and found that's not closely related enough in order to be a proxy for sex. In other words, for example- I this, Is the court, both the majority and the descendant Bray discussed, the, say, a voluntary abortion, the only people who are gonna have that concern directly are women, just like only women are going to be pregnant. Only trans individuals are going to be seeking this particular treatment. I just think it's very hard for you to distinguish that out, unless you say there's some unwritten equal protection exception for pregnancy. I appreciate that question, Your Honor, because I think it points us to the second reason that Cadultic was decided the way it was, which makes it a completely different case from this one. And that is that Geduldig is the equivalent of a complete ban on pregnancy coverage. And Dobbs tells us that a complete ban on a procedure is not sex discrimination merely because it exclusively affects one group. But that's not what we have here. The equivalent here would be if the plan completely banned hysterectomies, for example. But the plan doesn't do that. The plan affords this care to a number of people and not others, and the line that it draws but is Gedoldig, whether it matches your birth assigned sex. That doesn't make sense, because Gedoldig provided the very same coverage. That was disability coverage. It wasn't treatment, but it was disability coverage to lots of non-pregnant people, right? So it's, it's not that you're comparing apples and oranges, right? It, it would provided the very same coverage for lots of disabilities. It just excluded pregnancy. Right, and so this provides lots of mastectomies, right? If you've got cancer, you get a mastectomy, but you don't get it for this reason. So Geduldig was different because it was a complete ban. No one received disability benefits for pregnancy. And I would look again to Dobbs, in part because it deals with procedures, and we're dealing here with procedures and medications. And what Dobbs says is if you completely ban a procedure, if you completely ban abortion care, then that doesn't treat anybody differently, and it doesn't change just because that exclusively affects women. That's not enough to make it sex discrimination. But here, the plaintiffs only seek access to the same surgeries, the same hormone therapy that is provided to cisgender people. That makes this case entirely different from yeah, except the You have people. to go through the portal of injury or disease to get there, and that differentiates this. I appreciate the chance to address that. Gender dysphoria is a medical condition just like the other medical conditions that are covered under the plan, and that's unrefuted on the record. We right, have expert I, testimony. I think you're mixing up terms that are not necessarily synonymous between condition, injury, and disease. 
because there are a lot of conditions that aren't going to fit those other definitions. We have a definition in North Carolina law that has been adopted by the health plan. It is the health plan's own definition of medical necessity, and it is a health condition, illness, injury, or disease. Treatment has to be in the standard of care, and it has to be not solely for the convenience of the patient. And repeatedly running throughout this record, we have confirmation that gender dysphoria meets that standard. It's on the face of the Blue Cross Blue Shield policy for treatment of gender dysphoria. We also have communications from Blue Cross Blue Shield to the plan when they were reviewing appeals of denials of this care. And those communications say, you cannot deny this care based on a lack of medical necessity. Gender dysphoria meets that statutory definition. It meets the plan's definition. If you're going to deny it, you have to deny it based on a lack of plan coverage. And that testimony is simply unrefuted. So what if there's medical necessity for cosmetic surgery for um, emotional or psychological reasons? Plan bans that. So it is revisionist history for the plan to suggest that that exclusion has anything to do with banning this care. It was never invoked to deny care to any plaintiffs. But even more importantly, Your Honor, defendants introduced a declaration from Blue Cross Blue Shield into the record. And that declaration says, we at Blue Cross Blue Shield have never enforced that exclusion. We don't even have a diagnostic code that connects to that exclusion in order to be able to enforce it. So it is simply, again, revisionist histories to suggest that that exclusion has anything to do. We can see that as well when the plan moved to include this coverage in 2017. When uh, the board met with plan staff, no one ever referenced that exclusion. They certainly didn't discuss it in detail. They never suspended it. That exclusion had nothing to do with the care when it was provided in 2017. But doesn't the, doesn't the sheer breadth of what you are urging us to do cause you at least some hesitancy. You, you are saying that every state in this whole wide country has to conform to your view of an insurance policy. And if the people of Wyoming feel differently from the people of New York, too bad. There's nothing they can do about it. And there's nothing Congress can do about it because the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment is an analog to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th as a restriction on Congress. And, not, and notwithstanding its own expertise and the uh, role that it plays in federal funding of these insurance policies, there's nothing CMS can do about it. It's going to be my way or the highway for every doggone state. Nothing Congress can do, nothing the states can do, nothing CMS can do. I mean, the, the sheer breadth of this, um, of, of, of telling, of writing insurance policies on highly disputable constitutional theory, it's just staggering. Doesn't that cause you some hesitancy, the breadth of what you're urging? Your Honor, I think part of the answer to that is that the exclusion here is actually quite targeted. It's quite specific. And defendants have said repeatedly that this deals with a relatively small population. That's why I think this case is a particularly straightforward case. It's uh, quite specific, but the, the equal protection, uh, if, there was a, if there was a solid 
theory of equal protection, I could, I could go along with that. But that is so different from the kinds of things that Brown v. Board of Education or any of the sex discrimination cases have, um, have addressed. This is just not, there's a difference between night and day in terms of the clear-cut equal protection violations at issue in Brown and its progeny and Frontiero and its progeny. And, you know, what, what you have here is you think it's sex discrimination. Other people think that it's tied to an illness and not to gender. Um, other people think that it's, it's neutral because it, it, it covers male to female treatment and female to male treatment and the rest. But it is highly contestable. And in the face of this highly contestable equal protection doctrine, unprecedented, really, we're going to tell every state in the country how to run their insurance policies, how to treat their own employees, and not even the national legislature or the people of any state or the, 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 uh, the federal agencies that administer the funding. Not a doggone thing you can do. And doesn't that, doesn't that give you a little hesitation? I think that protecting people from sex discrimination by their government is one of our most cherished constitutions. Ms. Burley, um, you, you don't look old enough to have been around when Brown was decided, but Brown was highly contestable at the time, wasn't it? It certainly was, so Your Honor. So it was loving, wasn't it? It was, Your Honor. So I mean, this is that argument, it just seems, it, whether or not it's the day, I mean, that's the question, whether or not what we're facing here today is equivalent to those issues. And so to argue that it's contestable doesn't really answer the question, I don't think. And one thing that we certainly hope is not contestable is that transgender people are not strangers to the Equal Protection Clause. We think that applying sex discrimination principles here are required by a faithful application of constitutional jurisprudence and this court's precedence, um, and that that is one of the most important things that a court can do is to uphold those values to protect minority rights who are not able to protect themselves against majoritarian processes. Yes, I'll follow up on um, something you were talking about in the discussion, I think, with um, Judge Agee earlier and maybe in response to Chief Judge Diaz's question about cost. Um, I appreciate your points there, but does the issue of whether the cost is really significant or whether, um, whether gender dysphoria is covered under the plan, um, those factors seem to me to go to intent if we go to intent. I, I'm just trying to figure out where those factors relate in our um, structure of our analysis. And it seems to me if we were to decide it's not facially discriminatory, we would go to the Arlington Heights test and those factors might very well come into play in the motivation of the exclusion. But isn't that where we would look at them and not whether it's facial or not? I would suggest, Your Honor, that the, the place this is situated in the analysis is looking at governmental interests. So regardless of whether it is facial discrimination, proxy... Fair that, enough. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. But, but that doesn't... That, that's my point. That's once we you know, decide the facial question, then we get into those factors. Right. We would test the governmental interests, whether they're 
sufficiently important whether the classification is adequately yeah, tailored to them. Your position would be even if it's a rational relation, it doesn't meet it. But that's the that's the place in our analysis where we grapple with those issues. That's correct, Your Honor. I, I mean, I do think that some of this evidence could also be used, um, could be looked at to determine intent. If one is treating this as facially neutral and surveying all of the facts that are in the record, the board's debates, the staff's presentation, one could look to all of that evidence to, to glean intent, which I think is also clear on the undisputed facts on this case. Um, well, let me ask you on good diligence, because this whole business of costs, and when you think about that case, there was a case, as I said, the court discussed you know, all about benefits, I mean, the, the, the fiscal and actuarial benefits of the insurance program throughout. Then in a footnote, dived into this whole business of, uh, of, of the classification. And it's an interesting case from my perspective because a majority of the judges concluded, well, all women, uh, people are pregnant to women, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect the, the actuarial benefit of the insurance because you got the people who aren't pregnant are both men and women. I mean, that's one of the biggest fiction I've ever heard in my life, that someone who is pregnant, you wouldn't say you have to be pregnant because you're a woman and therefore it affects sex. You then look at the whole and say, well, it benefits both men and women who are not pregnant. But you get back to the, you just keep shaking your head and say, no, a disability is based on pregnancy, that's, that's just women. And, and I mean, I know that case is 40 years ago. And the law, as Judge H.G. alludes, maybe Dobbs might have just resurrected it <laughs> with another majority type on it. But that fiction is there. And the, the Judge Wilkerson's uh, statement of the world falls apart in the country because the insurance companies have to do something. But let's be clear, you're not saying it. What you're saying is the Constitution requires it. And when the Constitution requires something, we don't get into business of what it's going to cost the country. If you don't like it, change the Constitution. And, and because we as a court don't make those kind of judgments. We look textually at what the Constitution requires here. And we look equally to make sure it's being applied across the board. That's the question in this case. But we won't get there if we're going to start out, first of all, and say, well, we're not even talking about, we're not even looking at facial discrimination. And notwithstanding, you can go both ways on it. Or we, don't, we can't figure out which level of scrutiny. And if we are talking in two different veins on that and going, and then even we take the position that transgender is not connected to gender dysphoria, those are fundamental determinations. Those are the premises upon which we make this decision today. We can talk all over the world, but if you disagree on those things, you're going to be in a different camp altogether. And so I think that's kind of what we're going to have to do today is make those fundamental premise determinations of, of what are we talking about and where does this fit, in other words, structurally within our analysis is, otherwise we're all over the place. And, and, but I think that when we look at Godoldic, uh, Dobbs notwithstanding, uh, that's a problem case, uh, in, in, my, in my opinion. It just, it, it just defies common sense, uh, notwithstanding the way in which it was analyzed, seeing the non, uh, because then it slides back into the benefits of the, of the insurance program, how it affects it, but really, we're talking about the classification. And I don't know if that was rational basis or whether it was some other level of scrutiny that we're using. We, we certainly agree that Gedoldig has been the subject of a great deal of critique. We, of course, accept that it is binding. I just think it is inapplicable for the reasons mentioned. But on the point about cost, Your Honor, 
if I understood that question correctly, I hear the court alluding to the legal answer to that question. And the legal answer is that the 14th Amendment doesn't just afford equal protection when doing so is free. Um, as one example, it would save the health plan money if they could pay their female staff half their wages. The Equal Protection Clause doesn't allow that either. And so I think that's the answer to that. Um, Council, I have a question regarding you, um, I guess in follow-up to uh, Judge Witt, on Godaldick, it's my understanding in looking at the analysis, one of the things that the court did was consider the definition of pregnancy. Am I correct? And that sex is not in the definition of pregnancy to determine if it was facially discriminatory. Here, the word is gender dysphoria, transgender, transsex. I, I don't, am I correct in understanding that the analysis, that Godot would not be applicable here because the analysis, if you look at that analysis, we, the word gender, the word sex is repeatedly in the definition of gender dysphoria. It's in the, it's in the very um, title of the, according to the DSM-5. That's correct, and that's one of the things that completely separates this case from Godaldic. You can't say gender dysphoria without referencing sex. You can't define it without referencing sex. Pregnancy, on the other hand, the only question that Godaldic asks is, are you pregnant? The exclusion here asks, are you changing your sex? In other words, Godaldic determined, in essence, that being pregnant doesn't define women. But the line here is a proxy for being transgender, and Williams versus Kincaid recognized that. Can I ask a follow-up on that? Yes, Your Honor. You said it is, it's, the exclusion here is about are you changing your sex, and we've talked about that that, that comes from a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. But do you agree, I take it, that the class of people who do not have gender dysphoria includes some transgender people? Because it's a treatable condition, Your Honor. That's there, are, there are transgender people who do not have a gender dysphoria diagnosis. Some don't have access to clinical care. And so if they don't, they might not be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. But that discussion. Well, I thought, the, I thought it was more than that. I thought the record reflected that not all transgender people um, suffer from this discomfort that leads to the gender dysphoria diagnosis. So that in Godoldic's terms, you know, whether we like them or not, the class of people who is not covered are people with a certain with a gender dysphoria diagnosis and the class of people who are supposedly benefited by not providing coverage for that includes transgender and non-transgender people, people without a gender dysphoria diagnosis. I don't think anything changes the fact that Is that this right? I apologize. Could you repeat the question again? Does the class of people who are supposedly benefited under Godaldic include transgender, some transgender people? Sorry, Godaldic. benefited under Godaldic? Yes, the group of people who, people who don't have gender dysphoria. Not all transgender people have gender dysphoria, is what the record reflects, right? I thought you agreed with that earlier. Yes, some have received treatment, and they may not be experiencing gender okay, dysphoria right. any longer. So Godoldig explained, as Judge Wynn was just discussing, that the group of people who are supposedly benefited by not paying for certain coverages, in Godoldig, it was men and non-pregnant women, right? And so here, the group is people who are not transgender and people who are transgender but don't suffer from gender dysphoria, if we're speaking in Godoldig terms. 
So that analysis was all about whether there's a close enough proxy. And the court said, in Gedoldig, there's not a close enough proxy um, because. Uh, I guess the, I'm just asking, do you agree that that is the group of people who, uh, that we're comparing? This exclusion compares transgender people to cisgender people. Only transgender I people. The exclusion is about, I thought we were saying it's about gender dysphoria. <clears throat> well, on its face, it says sex changes. That refers to treatment for gender dysphoria. That is only transgender people, and there was no dispute of fact about that yeah, on this like record. Pregnancy is just women. But the difference there is that you have exclusive impact on women, but a categorical ban. And if you have a categorical ban, categorical exclusion on care, the exclusive impact alone doesn't make it sex discrimination. Here, we have the opposite. We don't have an exclusive ban on any of the care plaintiffs seek because by definition, plaintiffs well, are seeking the same form of care. Get covered disability benefits were provided for all sorts of other uh, disabilities, all sorts of diagnoses, but not for the diagnosis of pregnancy. Right? And that, so I think, again, I, that just gets back to the kind of apples and oranges distinction you're trying to draw here. Gedoldig is a problem for you, and we may agree or disagree with the Supreme Court on that, but it's still the law. And I, Still not saying the distinction, but I appreciate your answer. Well, counsel, when, when you're looking at equal protection, whether or not it's facial discrimination, you have to look at what is the class. Isn't the class here not dis people with dysphoria <coughs> broadly, but it's people with dysphoria who want surgery with sex to adjust their physical genitalia with their identity. It's not just <coughs> dysphoria, so everybody with uh, uh, gender dysphoria doesn't have, need it. That's correct, because that's not the class. You have to get it at the right level. The first level is what is the class, what is the suspect class? And it's people with gender dysphoria who require surgery. And there's no dispute about that in terms of, at that level of where they are in terms of their continual treatment, that surgery is indicated medically. And, that and whether you get it or not is determined by somebody figuring out well, when you were born, what was your sex? And based on that finding, which is finding solely on sex, you get it or not, coverage. Is that correct? That's correct. And the evidence to support that, Your Honor, so this only affects transgender people. And the evidence to support that can be seen in the debate board, the presentation by the staff, the board minutes when they decided to provide this coverage in tw for 2017. Everybody understood. It's all over those documents. Everybody understood that this affected transgender people and transgender people only. And that's the group affected by this exclusion. But it doesn't include all transgender people. I think the uh, point that Judge Rushing was making is that the condition addressed are people diagnosed with dysphoria. So that that condition is the excluded condition and that there are pe transgender people who don't have dysphoria. Yes. So it, it doesn't fit the model that you just asserted. Well, Your Honor, my understanding is that speaks to this issue of, is it, does it defeat an equal protection claim that only a subset of a group is affected? And the answer from the Supreme Court is unequivocally no. And we see that explicitly in Rice versus Caetano, Nyquist versus McClay. 
In Virginia Military Institute, in that litigation, the Supreme Court assumed that the majority of women would not want to attend the Virginia Military Institute. That didn't make it any less a sex-based classification for the women who Except did. Except this insurance policy doesn't focus at that uh, on those types of facts. This policy focuses on a condition of dysphoria and the byproduct of <coughs> treating dysphoria. And dysphoria includes some transgender, but not all. And the, uh, 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 the other difficulty, of course, is uh, this may be the first instance where a court would force a medical condition uh, uh, to give rise to a physical operation where the physical condition is not uh, uh, diseased or injured. In other words, the only reason for uh, doing the uh, uh, surgery uh, is uh, to accommodate the uh, mental condition, uh, but there's nothing wrong with the physical uh, parts. There's no disease on that. And uh, if we you acknowledge that cosmetic surgery uh, wouldn't is, uh, uh, can be authorized, I mean, can be excluded, uh, even if the surgery is related to depression or some serious mental condition. Uh, what you're now suggesting is that dysphoria, which is a mental condition and can be treated, uh, is, exists with respect to all transgenders, and I don't think the record supports that. Your Honor, recognizing I'm over time, I, I won't subject to the court to repetition, but I do want to make sure I respond by saying the plan has a definition of medical necessity. And it is the definition that they use for cisgender people, so it has to be the same test, the same definition that would be applied to transgender no, but people, and they about satisfy facial, it. Facial classification. We, we're not going down to that detail at this point. The facial classification are those people. There, there's a medical condition that is being addressed by the insurance and excluded by the insurance, and the medical condition that's excluded is dysphoria and related uh, matters relating to dysphoria. If you don't have an adverse medical condition, a disease or injury or a condition that uh, requires medical treatment, uh, then the, uh, the plan doesn't apply at all. It's not even in consideration. And we have transgender people that fit that classification. And the classification drawn is explicitly sex-based and also a proxy for transgender status, and we think that's what sets the level of review. Thank you, Ms. Barrow. Can Thank I you ask one oh, sure. question? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And this is not an equal protection question. It goes to one of the expert witnesses, Dr. Haruz, who is an endocrinologist. And he wasn't any endocrinologist. He was the head of pediatric endocrinology at Washington University. And I think it was uncontested in the record that he had treated hundreds of children and adolescents for <clears throat> sexual dysfunction, including a lot of them been treated for gender dysphoria. Not, he um, was, but if you'll wait, please. I apologize, Your Honor. Um, there was a clinic being developed for um, children in transgender medicine, which would report to him, as I understand the record. And even though the district court excluded uh, Dr. Lampert because he wasn't an endocrinologist. It barred him from uh, offering testimony as to causation and treatment, which it seemed like he was eminently qualified to do. 
and I didn't see the district court really dealt with any of those things. Thank you, Your Honor, and I apologize for my interruption earlier. Um, here's how the district court treated Dr. Hughes. So the testimony shows that he has not, per his admission, treated gender dysphoria. He has treated He's side treated effects. He's treated the after effects. Correct. He hasn't treated it in the first entrance because he thinks it's a faulty diagnosis. It's and medically not necessary. But he wasn't going to testify as to that. And notwithstanding that, the court still found him qualified and, and admitted testimony from him about the risks related to endocrinology because that is his field of discipline. What the court didn't find him qualified to do is to opine about surgery or about mental health care. He's, he's neither trained nor practicing nor researching in any of those fields, and so he can't offer a reliable opinion. But when it comes to his field of endocrinology, the court the court accepted that he should testify, but be able to testify rule, about the risks. knowledge in, in and of itself, which she seemed to this, uh, show in substantial portion, qualifies separately under Rule 702. And I just don't see that the district court ever grappled with that. I read the relevant portion of the district court's opinion to be where she says, the standard binds me to um, take all inferences in the most favorable light to the non-moving party. And applying that to the experts, all of the experts who testified in this, and all of defendants' experts, they still don't create, if I take at face value all their admissible testimony, including Dr. Hughes's, um opinions in his field of endocrinology, it still doesn't create a material dispute of fact. At most, it contests the relevance or the, the reliability of some, but certainly not all, of plaintiff's evidence that this care is medically necessary and medically efficacious. I have one clarification I'd like. Um, as I understand it, the proposition is that all individuals with gender dysphoria are transgender. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. But not all transgender people have gender dysphoria. Correct, including and because it's a comparatively, in Gudulik, the court understood that all persons who were pregnant were women, but not all women were pregnant. But they didn't compare that. What they compared was the group of men and women who were not pregnant. And here, it, it, the comparison is not with transgender, but with cisgender. So is that the differentiation? Because I'm, I'm trying to understand this, this whole business of comparing women who are, uh, or those who have dysphoria and those who are transgender. But if you don't accept, as I said, the, pr the premises that all individuals with dysphoria are transgender, then you kind of lose it. The, the other thing that kind of is, is somewhat confusing, but in all these cases, at some point in time, an appellate court is grappling with law and is grappling with facts. And we're talking a lot of medicine up here about things, quite frankly, just like that doctor's not qualified to talk about it, we really aren't either. So we have to rely upon what the record discloses here. They are, they are entities, this is what they do. And while we have our personal understanding of what a transgender person is and what they do, that's not our expertise. We deal with the law. On it, and 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 to me, that really gets grappled, and really gets uh, the Supreme Court's done it. We all do it. We get into making these these statements about what individuals and what groups do, and how it affects them. 
but it needs to point at some point back to an expert or something that establishes that fact and a trial judge that's made the finding of fact and determine whether there's abuse discretion or there's not evidence to support it, and then look at the law. And, and sometimes I think we spend a lot of time talking facts, but that's not what we do. Your Honor, one of the things that I think that I hope will be particularly helpful with deciding this case is that the Fourth Circuit has an especially well-developed jurisprudence with respect to transgender people. The Grimm case, the Williams versus Kincaid case, both involve extensive discussion of understanding transgender people and gender dysphoria. <coughs> the question is, are they closely connected? And there is no way on the law or on this record to answer that question with anything other than yes, they are closely connected. We look at the definition of the diagnosis and the definition of being transgender, the, the overlap between the two, the inextricable interrelationship between the two answers that question. Thank you very much, Thank Ms. You, Burley. Mr. Nepper. <coughs> Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, there were just a couple of, of things I wanted to return to because I, 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 think, I think the first is uh, briefly the discussion of medical necessity. Uh, there, the concept of medical necessity incorporates diagnosis. In other words, whether something is medically necessary, medically necessary to treat what? It again ties together what, what is your illness and what is the treatment you're receiving. So I, I, think, I think it's important to say you, you can't do as the district court did below or as, as, as has been suggested here and simply say, well, medical necessity is its own sort of separate connection between people. Uh, especially when, as, as is in the record, uh, there's no requirement that the plan cover something just because it's medically necessary. Um, on, on Geduldig, uh, I, I just want to make a, a brief clarification. The, the Geduldig plan wasn't a complete ban on coverage for pregnancy, so I, I don't quite know how that uh, distinction is made. I mean, in that case, the disability coverage was, was for so-called normal pregnancy. That's what was not covered uh, under the plan as it was reviewed by the Supreme Court. So I don't, I don't know that you can make a distinction by saying, you know, the Geduldig case what, you know, dealt with a complete ban on pregnancy coverage, whereas this deals with something short of that or different from that. Would it have changed the outcome? I'm sorry? Would that have changed the outcome? Uh, Your Honor, I think Godoldig, the, the point of Godoldig is that proxy reasoning is not a facial classification, and proxy reasoning is policed by inquiring the motive. So you think well, the teaching of Godoldig uh, uh, that's applicable, it seems to me, that has to be addressed by uh, uh, us is uh, whether the classification is all women or just women or just a condition. Uh, applicable to some women. And it seems to me, uh, in view of the record in this case, that uh, transgender persons are not all dis uh, uh, suffer from dysphoria, uh, and, the and the plan denies medical treatment just for uh, treatment of dysphoria and related uh, uh, conditions. It seems to me that analogy uh, uh, is, is strong. It's not a necessary classification against transgenders. 
it's against a condition. And I think that's the learning that Godoldig uh, would, would supply here in connection with that fact. And I don't think that's an, a fact that we as a court are making. Uh, uh, it seems to me that's just an undisputed aspect of the record. That, that is. And, and, and experts on both sides concurred in that point, Your Honor. Can I ask you a question? I, I, I thought I, did you say that you think after Godoldig there's no more proxy reasoning in the equal protection field? No, no, Your Honor, but, okay. but this is precisely, I, I'm glad you asked that, because I wanted to come back to your question on loving. The, 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 I, I, I wonder if you could stay with this. Yeah, 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 sure. The issue is not that proxy determinations cannot be violations of the Equal Protection Clause. The question we're asking here is whether they are facial discrimination. But even so, I mean, I feel like the Supreme Court has been pretty clear that um, things like bans on same-sex relationships, we treat those as facial classifications based on sexual orientation, even though not all gay and lesbian people at any given moment are engaged in a same-sex relationship. And, and I think, and, and that, that, you know, the question, right, is what is the distinction that is, that, that is being made? For I guess, example, loving race. I guess the question race. I would have, I guess the question as I would phrase it is, um, if we think the Supreme Court means what it says, when it says that bans on same-sex relationship or same-sex conduct, we can treat those as facial classifications based on sexual orientation. Why isn't this case more like that than it is like adult? Sure. Um, because, Your Honor, in, in those cases, the distinction and, I mean, in, in the conduct cases, right, they're, they're still saying that they're inextricably linked to the actual sex, right? They're not saying that... that but, but we agree that in those cases, there are plenty of gay and lesbian people who are not involved in same-sex relationships. So it doesn't matter that on the other side of the line, we have both gay and lesbian people and straight people. And, and, and but I think, I think the, the, the distinction is, for example, let, let's just use loving, I think, because it's clear. And I, I want to get back to Obergefell because I, I don't want to evade it. But loving, I think, sort of lays this out clearly, right? When you look at the statute in loving, the statute in loving explicitly makes a distinction based on race. That is a protected classification. And then it provides a benefit to some people. You know, some people can get married. You can marry someone of the same race. You just can't marry someone of a different race. And the court, and, and so, so the, the, the government is saying, you know, some, you know, this is a benefit and it's available to some and not to others. And the, and the critical question about whether you are able to access this benefit is your race. Here, no one gets surgery. No one gets no one gets changes to their sex. No one gets un, you know for, for this diagnosis. Period. I mean, there, it doesn't matter whether you are male, female, transgender, not transgender, and so that there's no benefit. There's no distinction that's being made between the individuals based on that criteria. Now, the next question is, oh well, don't we know that this only affects transgender people, which is which is, which is proxy-based reasoning, Your Honor. And, and I think that, that is you know, the kind of evidence of motive that we would expect to be covered in trial, but is not itself a classification. So is Lawrence Wong, like it turns out, a ban on same-sex sodomy um, is, not a facial, it is not a facial discrimination based on sexual orientation. It's just, you know, it's just conduct. Well, 
I guess I, I would say Lawrence, Lawrence is about you know a government's attempt to intrude into how people conduct themselves, and 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 this is this is simply what in a, in a government benefit program that's been created, what are the obligations under the un, un, on the government in terms of how it looks at what it's going to pay for and what it's not, and so long as they're making the distinction based on the risks, i.e., based on the illness, that's permissible. If, you, if, if they were to say, for example, transgender people can't get X, that's a facial classification. We would have to justify it as a, as a facial classification. Okay, but you think about Judge Harris. What if they say people who engage in this sort of conduct prohibited by the statute at issue in Lawrence can't get health insurance coverage? In your view, that's not facial classification. No, I'd say that. Is. I mean, you're, you're distinguishing between people based on, based on a class. You're, you're distinguishing between, between people or saying these people can have it. These people can't. That's the distinction. Why aren't you doing that here? Uh, for example, uh, gender dysphoria is not mentioned in the exclusion, is it? No, Your Honor. It's not, is it? No. No. So this thing about this covers all people with dys gender dysphoria and all people with dys gender dysphoria don't need surgery or want surgery. That's, 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 those are red herrings. As a matter of fact, it says treatment or studies leading, this what is excludes, treatment or studies leading to or in connection with sex changes or modifications and related care. So then, again, we're talking about people who have to, to determine whether you fit in this exclusion, you have to do a hunt as to what, they, what their sex was at birth, correct? You have to. You don't? How would you know whether it's a sex change if you don't know what that sex was at birth? Your Honor, we look solely at what's the diagnosis and it's what's no, the no, treatment. No, 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 no. This has nothing to do with diagnosis. This is, says treatment or studies leading to a connection with sex changes or modifications and related care. How do you know whether it's a sex change if you don't inquire specifically to what their sex was at birth to determine whether they're prohibited, they're excluded? How? Your, Your Honor, and answer that exact question. I don't want to hear around the bush. Answer that question. How do you determine a sex change excluding you from this benefit without determining what their sex was at birth? The, the, the unrebutted evidence is the plan looks at what is your what is your treatment? What is this treatment and why are you receiving this treatment? And the fact but, that okay, well, the okay. physicians... If you find out why they want the treatment and what the diagnosis is, how do you know whether it's excluded by the prohibition on sex change without knowing what their sex was at birth? I mean, that seems like, I mean, I just want to know, how do you do that? Your Honor, the, the physicians know and the physicians... Oh, no, oh, no, no, I know how you can find out. I'm saying, how do you do it without making that determination? And then that determination alone excludes you. No matter what your diagnosis is, what the, how, how, how serious it is, or what the implications might be, how dire they are, if it's sex change, you're prohibited. You're excluded, period. End of story, right? Your Honor, the, the plan prohibits certain, the plan does not cover, it doesn't prohibit certain treatments. That's that's what we're looking at, not people. The question of whether you qualify for that treatment is it? We talking about this is this is why this is what a facial determination is. On its face, 
does is there a suspect, quasi-suspect classification? And it here is sex. Tell me how do you not determine that solely based on determination what their sex was at birth? Because if, for example, there are many things you cover if you had your birth sex was the same. But here, it's, it's excluded because it's different, right? No. Do you know what a sex change is? Well, what is it? What is a sex change? Well, that, 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 that is actually a subject of quite considerable discussion in the record below. Because, no, no, in, in fairness, because... No, not fairness. There, there's, an evolving, there's an evolving question about what are the treatments that are medically necessary and which ones are not. Is it just mastectomies? Is it further, is it, you know, facial shaping? Is but it shoulder the, shaping? But that's the whole thing. No matter how meritorious medically it is, it is requiring, you categorically refuse it, exclude it, because it constitutes a sex change. It is taking you to a physical genitalia condition that's different than your physical sex at birth. That alone excludes it. How do you get around that? That, that is a risk. The risk that you will need that treatment is not covered by the plan. Council, I have a clarifying question about that. I thought earlier you said the plan would not cover detransitioning. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that means it wouldn't cover a change to go back to your birth sex. It wouldn't cover a change either direction. So it's not doesn't have to be going from sex assigned at birth to a different one. It could be going back to sex assigned at birth, and that is not covered. Is that right? That is correct. That is not covered, Your Honor. Okay. Can I, can I, Chief Maida, thank you. When you were talking to Judge Harris a minute ago, and then we got derailed a little bit, but I want to come back just because you had two points, and it seemed like the second one you didn't quite get to, and I just wanted to hear, um, you know, Judge Harris asked you about Lawrence um, and whether that was a facial classification under the Equal Protection Clause. I haven't read Lawrence in a while, but I thought it was a due process clause case, but then I also wanted to hear you Remind me if, if I'm right or wrong about that, or if you remember. Um, and then second, you, you said you wanted to talk about Obergefell, and so I wanted to get your take on whether you thought Obergefell um, sort of supported or, or undermined uh, Judge Harris's question. No, I, I think, thank, thank you, Your Honor. I think, I think the, the critical what is what's getting uh, mixed in, in sort of the analysis and, and the discussion here is what, what is the facial classification? And, and, and not, again, we're not claiming that there's not other ways to find violations of the Equal Protection Clause. We're simply starting with, is there a facial classification? And, and the courts, and the, what the courts, in, in, in a Obergefell, it's sex. That determines whether or not you're able to marry the person of, of your choosing. If that person is of, one, if, of the same sex, you couldn't. If the person was of a different sex, you could. In loving, race is the decision-making the decision -making factor. In this case, neither transgender status nor uh, biological sex is the basis for determining whether or not you can get these procedures. It's simply, you, you can, you, we don't cover them for anyone. We don't cover them to affirm your current biological sex. We don't cover them to change your biological sex. We don't look at the reason you're seeking them. We simply don't cover them. Now, does that mean that you can't prove 
discrimination and a lot of the discussion of cost and, uh, and, and discussion of the, of the record that was developed in this case, we think that's absolutely relevant to decision making, but that's relevant at the trial stage when considering motive, which is where the court has for many years they relied on that process to sniff out this kind of proxy discrimination. But the classes are, you know, does this distinguish on its face between people of one sex and another allocating benefits on that basis? Does this distinguish between people who are transgender on its face allocating benefits on that basis? And it, and, and it does not. Thank you, Mr. Nepper. Uh, um, let me, uh, one, one last question. I'm going to ask some Gadud. You said in Gadud that it dealt with a normal pregnancy. Would the result have been different if the policy had said women who are pregnant? Uh, <coughs> thank you, Your Honor. That was on my list of things that I wanted to get to. Uh, the court itself says only women can get pregnant. I mean, you can't, the court's reasoning was that this was this was a policy that only affected women. But if the policy itself oh. said women who are pregnant, or the policy here said transgender people who have this word, would that be a problem? Would that be excludable, impermissible exclusion? Your Your Honor, I, I I think the answer is yes, when, when you're distinguishing. I mean, the, the follow-on cases from Gedolding distinguish between things like pregnancy or, in this case, the need for a specific treatment from, uh, and, and then, but then they go on to say that where you're making the, the explicit distinction in the premiums charged, right? Men pay this, women pay that. The court actually says, no, that's, that's a violation of equal protection because you're making that facial classification and men and women are getting different benefits based on that fact alone. And that's written in the statute. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nepper. Um, when Chief, uh, former Chief Judge Gregory uh, uh, um, assigned me the reins to the circuit, he said that there might not be anything attached to them sometimes, and that's sometimes the case. But. Um, but, but I will say this was Crowd's a... Crowd's a little slow on that take. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was a very thoughtful argument. I appreciate it on behalf of the court uh, on a very important case, uh, obviously. And um, I, I thought that counsel's uh, presentations were, um, were able and efficient and certainly helpful to the court. And for that, we, we thank you both. We're going to come down and, and greet you and then take a short recess before we move on to our second case.